0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Uh, Brother Derek, how you doing today, sir? Well, I'm just so excited to talk with you about the scriptures again. It's like we
1: can never get tired of it.
0: No, you really can't get tired of it. Like this is, I mean, this edifies me, this uplifts me, and obviously always good to have like nice little fellowship with each other so I look forward to this and uh, I can't wait to hear Mm -hmm. some of uh, the insights that you got from this week's reading as well as a general conference a little bit but let yeah Yeah. let's go ahead and uh, jump right into it but before we do well I want to I want to say that I'm looking forward
1: to the millennium because then we'll finally have enough time for all my videos
0: (laughs) yeah all the videos like yes, none of which, I've me. only watched one of them to completion. I watched, and even that video was a part one of a series. So <laughs> there's still like three and a half hours of that video, of that series left. So uh, I, I have a lot of catching up to do with Derek videos and Derek audio. One of the first pieces he sent mm-hmm. me was like an hour and a half long. And I was like, I need two work days to get through this, but it's, it's fine. It's fine. Anyway, let's go ahead and uh, begin. But before we do... Wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash podcast network. Okay. So before we go ahead and get into the Come, Follow Me, I just wanted to do a brief general conference recap because we did have that this past week. You know, there were some highlights. There was 20 new temples announced. I think that was probably the biggest highlight.
1: There was like new changes, policy changes more in favor of single people. And then some of the talks were about single people.
0: Yeah, yeah. That was not mentioned at conference. I mean, it was mentioned in passing. The fact that like single people can do more now, that that bit of news is quite interesting. Single people being able to like serve in bishoprics and stuff, among other things, that has the potential to be a game changer. But you know, we'll see. Policy is still new. We shall see what happens and see if uh, culturally we get to a point where we have a little bit more respect for the capabilities of our single members. I was pondering on what I might want to say about general conference. Now, le- before I like get into it, just I'm uh, as a little disclaimer, I must say this and just understand that I'm saying this as, you know, an incomplete individual, a very flawed individual that's still on a journey towards, you know, you know, the Lord's definition of perfection. This past conference, I don't feel like there was, a lot in this conference for me, something that I thought a lot about during the conference and in the immediate aftermath of it. When, you know, when I knew there would be all kinds of think pieces and commentary about the lack of women at the conference, the ethnic diversity that was present, Oakes's words in the uh, Sunday afternoon session, I think it was, his words about the Constitution, uh, Nelson's words about lazy learners. I knew there was going to be think pieces and thoughts about all of that stuff. And I can't really add much to what has already been said because what has been said, in my opinion, is valid and my repeating or, you know, disagreeing with it even won't add much to the conversation, at least not in especially groundbreaking and life-giving ways. So I, I do want to, you know, refrain from that piece of it. But what I do want to say about General Conference as a, as a whole is that uh, the talks that spoke most to me were the ones that spoke most directly to issues real people in real trouble are doing, are, are dealing with. Uh, talks that at least, you know, even in uh, passing, spoke to issues of justice. You know, when Holland spoke of abuse, uh, I was grateful. When Renland, referenced Brian Stevenson the subject of the book and movie Just Mercy mm-hmm. I was grateful when he also was the first general authority to my knowledge to acknowledge the uh, to acknowledge intersectionality and when he declared that there is more to fighting injustice than simply not being the perpetrators I was grateful for that you know Reverend yeah. stays being my dude for stuff like that and the reason I was grateful was because those messages were relevant to the most urgent matters we face as a society. They were relevant to matters of justice. You know, what I what I believe to be the reason the church, and when I say the church, I'm speaking of Christianity in general now. But the reason I believe young people don't want anything to do with the church or the reason why we struggle to command respect as a faith or an institution is because... People can't hear the good news of Jesus Christ over the sound of their stomachs growling. They can't hear the good news of Jesus Christ over the dying breaths of black people or the crying of queer folks. They can't hear a Jesus that doesn't actually come into their spaces, that doesn't come into their lives and speak to the things that they are dealing with. This was my prevailing feeling through many of the messages you know, for who I am in this season of my life, I I need to know and I and and I crave a word that lets me bless the rest of the human family. I, I crave a word that convicts us to be that convicts us to deliberate and consistent action against prejudice and injustice. I crave a word that wakes up the world for the conflict of justice, and I ain't get that this weekend really. Mm, you mm, know? Mm. I, I I don't know that I'm going to get that in the near future either. And, uh, you know, perhaps conference ain't really for me right now, and that's okay. I I don't know. What I do know is that I I don't want to watch 10 hours of conference, 10 hours of listening to the Lord's anointed in these latter days, 10 hours of some octogenarians born in the Jim Crow era, you know, to come away with mere minutes of platitudes and sanctimonious trivialities that Mm -hmm, equate mm -hmm. to... You know, jumping in the pool and calling it a bath. You know, I don't I don't want to be dealing with that. You know what I'm saying? This isn't to say that I can't use what was said in these talks to that end. Yeah. I, I do want to make space for that. But I don't feel like I should have to perform scriptural exegesis on conference talks. You know what I'm saying? Like, these are supposed to be for our day. These are supposed to speak to us. And I'm just, you know, I'm tired of people... Preaching Jesus without justice, or people that think they can preach Jesus without justice, and mm-hmm. I just want to hear—I just want to hear more of that. You know what I'm saying? The church knows. Well, oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Um, did you think Oaks's Black Lives Matter talk from a few months ago did speak more
0: to what we're actually talking about? I did, simply because he spoke words that convicted the right people, you know? Saying Black Lives Matter is a big deal in our church. Now, obviously it shouldn't be, and we're seven years late to the party, but I think for our Mm -hmm. audience, for our people, the fact that he went that far in actually saying Black Lives Matter, in naming white supremacy and naming police brutality, like that is pretty huge in the LDS world. And I think that is moving in the. Di- I think that's moving in the right direction. And I'll even say that Oaks did some of the same in, uh, in his in his uh, latest talk in this past general conference. Like when he spoke about the Constitution, when he spoke about political yeah. extremism, mm-hmm. the right mm-hmm. people got upset. You know, for as moderate as Oaks is, I thought that was pretty. I thought that was pretty. You know. I thought that was a pretty big deal and pretty brave of him. So sorry, long convoluted way of saying, yeah, to a degree, I think that uh, Oakes went there in his October 27th devotional at BYU. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good that it was Oakes who said
1: that we shouldn't judge fellow Latter-day Saints for supporting, well, Biden, really. I think that's the that's the under underlying thing in this context.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Because if Uchdorf had said that, well, no one would have taken it seriously.
0: <laughs> right, right. I think because Oak said something like that, I think it carries a lot more weight. And... Uh... So, I don't know, man, just as weird as I feel saying this, Oaks is kind of one of my conference MVPs from this last uh, from this last conference. I really liked his remarks on the resurrection, and I uh, really appreciated what he had to say about uh, the Constitution. As American-centric as it was, it was a necessary message for this very American church. God looks like God
1: is on the move here with President Oaks. I think there's something something to be said about uh, when people are pushed into the responsibility it's kind of like people get callings to grow them ooh i really think that oaks is going to be different as a prophet than he was in the you know the the homophobic oaks mhm i'm not going to say he's pro uh, going to be all the way pro gay but i think once he realizes the res- the tremendous responsibility he has as the prophet he will be uh, living into that and take it Seriously.
0: <laughs> I think you will as well.
1: I mean, because I believe that these are people called by God to be prophets. I think God really does inspire them and move them and uh, obviously doesn't take away their agency. They can still mess up. But I do believe that they are called of God. And and
0: we mm-hmm. see that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think so as well. And uh, God is just doing what he always does. He's doing the best he can with you know, the people he's got to work with, and to Oaks's credit, I will say that, uh, you know, when he's, I feel like when he's had to say things that he wouldn't normally say, he stepped up to the plate. Like, I feel like when moments have come for him to, uh, you know, put up or shut up, I think he's put up more often than not, and uh, because of, you know, how moderate Oaks is, I, I think he will be the perfect person to come into some more affirming theologies as a church, because everybody will believe it if it comes from Oaks, or at least a lot of people will believe it if it comes to Oaks, or will be more prone to believe it if it comes from Oaks. Cause to many of us, he's the last person we would expect this stuff from. So I'm I'm anxious to see how the Lord moves through Oaks in the, in the coming years. Let's go ahead and uh, move on to the Come Follow Me for this week. We are going to be in Doctrine and Covenant sections. 37 through 40 so uh, if you could fill in some of these gaps Derek I got a quick little background that I want to put on before we get uh, go ahead and dive into the content so what we got going on here is two different narratives the first is in 37 and 38 where the Lord where the church had grown a bunch during the mission that was originally to who the church believed to be the Lamanites that we talked about last week and they didn't have converts among uh, the native americans but they had a bunch in ohio so much so that they ended up uh, basically tripling them tripling the membership of the church overnight and not long after this is uh the conference in 1830 and the saints and the lord commanded the saints to gather in ohio which is what we got in section 37 a relatively short revelation i think it's like three or four verses and then we get to section 38 where the Lord is explaining the why, because the members wanted to know why. That's kind of a big, you know, sacrifice, a big move, a big step for a lot of folks. And then we get to the second narrative, which is in sections 39 and 40. We get Revelations 2 and about a man believed to be a Methodist minister named James Koval He's described as having a heart right before God, and he covenants to obey any command given through Joseph, Joseph receives commandments and is promised blessings in carrying out those commandments, namely to build the church and to join the saints in Ohio. This is section 39. And then within a day, we get section 40 because Brother James broke his covenant and the Lord explains why again in a couple short verses. Uh, Any Mm -hmm. gaps you want to fill in there, Derek? No, I don't think so. Not yet. All right, then let's go ahead and dive into the, to, uh, sections 37 and 38. Uh, where would you like to begin there, Derek? Let me just say a few things about section 38. All right.
1: So here's uh, section 38, verse four. I am the same which have taken the Zion of Enoch into mine own bosom. And I was thinking about this in connection with stuff that's been happening online. Ugh, okay. Online is a mess like I don't know why online
0: (laughs) could be talking about a lot of stuff here what you want to talk about what you've been experiencing
1: yeah so the word Zion here can give us some new language around social justice because I think the haters have caught on to some of our words like they now are using words like intersectionality and critical theory Mm. and and social justice like so here's here's where I'm so naive like I remember years ago seven years ago after trayvon martin was murdered hearing black lives matter and i thought wow they actually came upon a saying that no one can object to like that is that is solid there's no way (laughs) Uh, and of course i was wrong i also think Mm -hmm. thought of the same thing when i heard of social justice i'm like that is a valid concept no one will say that they're against social justice Mm-hmm. Uh but I was wrong. Like yeah. I have mi- I have underestimated the depravity of humankind. <laughs> so So I think there's this treadmill where we're going to have to start using different words because the words we have been using are now um they they're now just dismissed and people don't actually understand them. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who say that that critical theory and not the gospel is our religion. This has happened online where people say, look, the, the progressive wing of the church is actually a different religion. It's mm-hmm. wokeism, it's social It is. it is, that's the foundation and the primary way of looking at it, and it's mm-hmm. not actually the same religion. And so dialogue is actually across religious boundaries rather than within a religion. And I don't agree with that at all. I'm here to say that I've never read a book on critical theory like people might think I have. I haven't. I have not read any books on critical theory. I've arrived at my values directly from reading the Bible and in light of um, my experience likening the scripture unto myself. Mm-hmm. There, There is a proverb from the Middle Ages, beware the man of one book. <laughs> And I see myself as a man of one book. I think that there's two ways of taking that proverb. Like if there's a, someone who only knows one book, they probably aren't very uh, educated or very well trusted or you can't really depend on them. They probably are very narrow in their thinking. But on the other hand, be, you could take it the other way as if someone knows a book very, very well and they've dedicated their, their life to that one book, then they're going to be very powerful in that one book, and mm-hmm. you can you cannot um, topple them in any way. So that's how I see myself as a man of one book. That is the Bible. And I, I don't think that's in competition with the Book of Mormon or the d and I think that cherishing the Bible leads you to also want to read the Book of Mormon and D&C, and then the same thing the other way around. If you cherish the Book of Mormon, it's gonna make you wanna read the Bible,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and so forth. This gets back to this online idea that some people think that critical theory is some foreign thing that commands our loyalty, and we're more loyal loyal to that than to the church or Christ. But when I read the scriptures on their own terms, in their historical context, they are often about power power dynamics. You can't Mm -hmm. understand the scriptures without naming the power dynamics at play and the systemic injustice Mm -hmm. that's in the, not just the background but the front ground Mm -hmm. of what the narrative of the text. Mm -hmm. You can't read Exodus without talking about power. You can't study the exile or understand the Hebrew prophets without analyzing power. Same with the Gospels. Much of Paul is about group power dynamics in the church, especially First mm-hmm. Corinthians, Galatians, and Philippians. Like yeah. these weren't Marxists. I I don't <laughs> like that the that this is all Mark called Marxism. Like Marx, this isn't Marxism. This is the Bible. It's mm-hmm. you know it is speaking to or from the poor and oppressed. Mm-hmm. It's it, speaking from the margins. We learn from the Bible that power is complicated. It can be used both for good and for evil. And that's why I think power needs to be shared. There is no room for unrighteous dominion in the gospel. The biblical value all over the place is that power should be shared. Mm -hmm. And at this time in the church's history, I see no evidence of straight and cisgender leaders in the church sharing power with LGBTQ folks. I think that is... Um, that practice is really not even in our tradition. Like I, I think that the homophobia that has infiltrated the church is not native to the church. It is something that we have borrowed from apostate churches uncritically without revision. I don't think that there's anything in the unique materials of our tradition that require homophobia. It's just not, that's not the Lord's way. Mm hmm. And I wanna connect this a little bit with verse 16, DNC 38, verse 16. It says, the poor have complained before me, and the rich have I made, and all flesh is mine, and I am no respecter of persons. This mm-hmm. phrase, respecter of persons, has to do with favoritism or prejudice, mm-hmm. or seeing people differently. We will uh, seek concern for equality to be a thread that runs throughout all of the gospel tapestry. This revelation was given at a church conference on January 2nd, 1831. Mm-hmm. It seems likely that James Coval was in Fayette, New York at this time or shortly after. Perhaps his curiosity led him to attend this conference or he heard the buzz about this conference among the saints shortly after it took place. Mm-hmm. But we do know that he was in Fayette a few days later on January 5th, 1831. That's the date of section 39. And so it seems quite likely that the substance of Section 38 at this conference was a spark that led James Covill to want to sojourn with the saints. Mm -hmm. By the way, we got the term general conference from the Methodists. And I'll talk a little bit more. We'll both talk about James Covill a little bit later and Mm -hmm. why the connection to Methodism is so important. Okay. And this connects really closely with DNC 38 verses 24 through 27, which I think was has been for a time one of my favorite texts that requires equality among God's people. Mm-hmm. I think this is one of the most pro-LGBT texts in the Doctrine and Covenants. So here's mm-hmm. what it says. And let every man esteem his brother as himself and practice virtue and holiness before me. Now it goes on to define what that uh, virtue and holiness is. And again, I say unto you, let every man esteem his brother as himself. That's another value. I really think that if for half a second straight people in the church thought about what it would look like for them, uh, if what was done to us was done to them, they would fix it in a moment. Like mm-hmm. if straight people couldn't get married, if straight people couldn't go to the temple, mm-hmm. if cisgender people weren't weren't recognized as the gender that they know they, they would be, like mm-hmm. they would never tolerate this for themselves. Correct. Correct. They would never tolerate this for themselves. Like mm-hmm. all you have to do is for half a second love your neighbor as yourself and these problems would be fixed.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
1: And then it goes on to say, For what man among you, having twelve sons, and is no respecter of them, and they serve him obediently, and he saith unto the one, Be thou clothed in robes, and sit thou here. And to the other, Be thou clothed in rags, and sit thou there. And looketh upon his sons, and saith, I am just. Basically, he's saying, What man of you would treat your sons differently and then claim to be just. Mm-hmm. Verse 27, behold this I have given unto you as a parable, and it is even as I am. I say unto you, be one, and if ye are not one, ye are not mine. This should strike terror into the hearts of all of us who are complicit with inequality and discrimination. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's a lot of this happening in our church culture. Many groups, including single folks, women, people of color, disabled folks, non Americans. You know, our church is so American centric, we forget culturally that there's a lot of saints in other countries that, that worship differently, they look differently. And then there's poor people, and of course, LGBTs. All of these groups are clothed in rags and told to sit over there. Mm-hmm. And then people think they're just. Even mm-hmm. when defending this discrimination, mm-hmm. and this unlocks the real meaning of "if ye are not one, ye are not mine." Have you ever heard people try to use this to to get people to get in line and like? Oh, you've absolutely, gotta, absolutely. Like, oh, you got to be united in your opinion. There's nothing about unity of opinion here, right? In the like, in the don't in, mistake uni- unity for uniformity. Exactly. In verses twenty through twenty-four through twenty-seven, this whole parable. It's not about everyone believing everything. Um, in common or agreeing with other people it's about the treatment if that's what Mm -hmm. it means to be one and so some people weaponize this statement if ye are not one ye are not mine to get marginalized people to agree to the discrimination that's actually the reverse of -hmm. what's going on here Mm -hmm. nothing in this portion of the revelation like i said is about unity of opinion it's about the elimination of injustice and the only way to be truly one is to treat people the same so there's no division in the body. Even though there's mm-hmm. diversity in the body, there's no division
0: in the body. Everything you just said is the reason why B1, why this particular verse was the uh, was the theme of the B1 celebration in 2018. Because we really wanted to drive home the fact that in order for us to truly be one, reconciliation had to take place like real racial reconciliation had to take place. It's like, as you said, this should strike terror into us that if we are not one, we are not the saviors, which, which to us, at least in that moment in 2018 meant if we don't learn to fully integrate, you know, people of color, Mm -hmm. black people, especially at this particular moment into the church, the way that we are supposed to be integrated and protected and valued then we are not going to be acceptable to the Savior, and obviously this is extended to any other marginalized group. That any of those other groups that you've named. Yeah, and I want to talk a little, a little about what it means to be
1: mine when Jesus okay. says, "If you are not one, you're not mine." The the key to that is looking at Jesus's character. Like, what did he do? How did he minister? Like, if we don't follow that, if we don't get people to to be treated in, in unity, if we don't make the last first and the first last we're not his if we don't do what he did and say what he said and live as he lived and in fact die as he died you know that really is is something we're called to do like if we have a choice between cooperating with injustice or dying we need to die um that's what he that's what he says when he says take up your cross and follow me
0: yeah that's what esther said you know, when she said, if I
1: perish, I perish. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to go on to DNC 38. This is verses 35 um, through 37. Right. And they shall look to the poor and the needy. Remember, this is at a conference, and, and we'll come back to this later. And they shall look to the poor and the needy and administer to their relief that they shall not suffer and send them forth to the place which I have commanded them. And this shall be their work to govern the affairs of the property of this church. And they that have farms that cannot be sold, let them be left or rented as seemeth them good. So part of the historical context of this, and I don't have all the details in front of me, but there was a large number of poor saints, and then I think there was a larger number of influx of saints that had more means, or they had farms, and they were supposed to sell these farms and relocate to Ohio so that there's more economic Justice among the people, and so the people who had more were asked to give more, so that everyone could thrive. And this is exactly what was going on with this parable, right? Mm-hmm. That we can't just say, "Oh, you sit over here because you you're poor." And here's the other thing: if you um, this may have attracted James Koval to the church, he may mm-hmm. have been here for this conference, or he may have heard about it shortly afterward. There's a significant journal article by Christopher Jones that talks about this. It's called Mormonism in the Methodist Marketplace, colon, James Koval and the Historical Background of Doctrine and Covenants 39 and 40. And there's some really interesting things. I, I think people should go ahead and, and this is available publicly. Just search for that and you will, you will see some really cool things. It turns out that we have evidence that James Covel was very much interested in social and economic justice. He in, was involved in a number of structural organization for the poor, uh, it, helping out the poor in different ways. He also participated with Reverend Stilwell in the ordination of black members to the uh, to be elders in the Methodist movement. And so he, I think, probably heard all of this stuff about equality in DNC 38 or saw how it was playing out in the community if he wasn't there at the conference. And he's like, yeah, I'm on board with this. I want to get in on this. Mm -hmm. And um, another piece of this journal article is about why it is important that we name him as a Methodist. There's some people for a while who thought he was a Baptist, but further research, including this article, now identifies him with a Methodist minister named James Koval. And that can explain some of his attraction to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and might show some of his reluctance. Some of the reluctance may have come in on the issue of infant baptism, because the Baptists did believe in the baptism of adults upon their profession of faith. And the Methodists believed in infant baptism and were not likely to want to baptize again. And so James Covel might be like, well, I, I had my baptism as an infant. I don't need one. Uh, and so in 39, section 39, when it says arise and be baptized, that is something that may uh, James may have had to wrestle with. Another thing is that the mm. Methodists were much more itinerant than the Baptist minister. So he knows what it's like to have to move around. He knows what it's like to be called and sent places. And he may not have wanted to go to the Ohio. He may not have wanted to to do these type of things. And he knows the sacrifices involved. And so the Mm -hmm. fact that he was a Methodist actually changes. It may build some empathy for him and explain what he was attracted to in the church Mm -hmm. and what eventually may have distanced him from the church. Yeah, perhaps. But the the main point about this was it looks like James Covel was very much on board with social justice, Mm. um, including issues of economic and racial
0: justice. Cool. I did not know that about James Covel. Do we have any more to go over in Section 38 before we talk a little bit more about Covel?
1: Yeah, just one thing in 38. I love this line. It says, but if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. And this is a great way to approach anti-LGBT material and people in the church is to get prepared for it. It's gonna come, right? We know it's coming. We know there's gonna be that talk or that policy. We don't know exactly what it is or who it is, who's gonna give the talk, but it's coming. And uh, how many of you listeners are prepared? Do you have something ready to go the next time you hear something anti-LGBT at church? or in conference, or in your family, or community, or online. Like, are you prepared? Are you as an ally prepared to say something? Or are you, if you're LGBT, prepared to, to keep yourself safe and have some defenses and shields in place? So yeah, if if we're prepared. See, that's, I think, people see me as very fearless in the church. Like, I'm not afraid of homophobia in the church. Like, I'm I'm basically immune, and that's kind of I'm. I'm prepared. No one can do anything to me. Hmm. And I think the the thing about no one can doing do anything to me has to do with where you draw the lines. If you if I think my job is to beg people f- for my own human dignity, like that's a game that I cannot win. I won't yeah. win that, right? Yeah. Because unless you start with the assumption that my people are fully human and deserve full human lives, you won't get there. Mm-hmm. You, there's no way that you can prove my humanity unless you start with my human. I'm sure you. it's the same thing with, with black folks. Like if you have to argue for the humanity of black folks, you've already lost the game, mm-hmm. right? So, so that's where I am. I'm like, I'm not playing that game. I'm going to live my best life. That sounds like something Joel Osteen would say, right?
0: <laughs> I didn't even think about that, but it yeah, might be. I,
1: yeah. You, yeah, this is God's best for you. Well anyway. So that's my, <laughs> my um practical advice from section thirty-eight, verse thirty, is if we're prepared we will not
0: fear. I often hear that particular verse in the context of uh, you know, missionary work. I mean, that's where I first had this uh This phrase beat into my head to basically know the scripture so well that when Mm -hmm, I came across mm -hmm. people on the streets or when I went into people's homes to tell them the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I would have my mouth filled. And, you know, just to uh, call back to the previous chapters we read last week, I mean there was all these promises about the Lord promised to fill our mouths if we opened them and that we would be laden with sheaves if we opened our mouths, if we were in the right positions and we were simply willing to speak up. But uh, a lot of yeah. uh, people neglect You know, we kind of forget that this work of preparation precedes that power. And uh, if we really want to be ready to engage in this work, whatever that work is, if it's missionary work, if it's justice work, and, you know, you could even make the argument that, you know, this missionary work or justice work is a form of missionary work, then uh, we have to be prepared to engage uh, these forces and engage People who may seek to act in an unjust manner to us or to other people—that is the kind of preparation you were talking about just now—and uh, I just yeah. want us to be ready for it. It's like the whole food storage thing. Like people, bro, <laughs> prepare
1: for whatever they're preparing for. Yeah, like if if we've got people who can prepare with a year's worth of wheat in their basement in in the middle of Utah. Why can't we prepare better for the welcome of, of marginalized people? We, we mm-hmm. know they're coming. We know they're here. Like, we need to be better prepared for that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Especially, straight parents need to be prepared to have queer kids, or at least the possibility.
0: For real. Yeah. We, we don't do the best job. And, you know, I heard somebody say a long time ago Mormons breed gays. And uh, you'd be surprised just by how often we have to deal with this issue and by how much allyship is growing within the church that we're just not better prepared to deal with this. Like, it's, it's a problem. And I wish we did better by our LGBTQ siblings in uh, being ready to engage this potentially dehumanizing culture that we are sending our children into and that we are potentially mm-hmm. bringing our friends into. So yeah, I agree completely. Preparation is very necessary. If we can collect wheat against a pandemic or, you know, collect all this dried and canned food against some doomsday apocalypse, then certainly we can be ready for prejudice and bigotry in all of its forms. I I definitely want to get into more of the story of James Covel and uh, and these revelations that pertain to him. Mm -hmm. So immediately i did something a little unorthodox i felt like i needed to start with this story when i started uh reading the scriptures when i started reading this week's come follow me because when i read the chapter headings that's how i start every every study i was like hold up this dude got this whole revelation from god and he wasn't a member of the church and then a day later i couldn't help us but notice the day a day later He ignores the revelation and he just doesn't come back. And I was like, I got to know more about this guy. I got to know. I got to know more about this story because first of all, it sounded way too familiar as I read it. And this 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 is why it's extremely reminiscent of how white people respond to high profile black trauma. James Koval mm, wasn't yeah. just a minister, like we talked about this. He wasn't just a minister in the Methodist faith. He was a president of a Methodist conference in Western New York. Like no doubt this man was getting paid in his ministry and knowing the kind of work it takes today to become ordained, much less the president of any Protestant organization. This dude was probably comfortable there and well-known and well-liked and deeply connected. He was a leader of that church. He was a leader of the Methodist Reform Movement in the 1820s. That's the same movement that, uh, that, uh, that uh, Brigham Young came from. Like, Wilfred Woodruff came from that movement, too, and John Taylor. They all came from that movement prior to their conversion. And uh, he also had two sons that were preachers, Koval did. Man's put in, like, 40 years preaching and leading in his church. Then he attended this conference that we talked about. Like, it's likely that he attended this conference and probably was uh, pricked with these words about economic justice and social, ju- and social justice. Perhaps that's what intrigued him. Either way, there was something he was impressed with during his time among the Mormons. And he was so impressed that he decided to just hang out in Fayette for a little bit and talk further to the leaders to the point where he was ready to do whatever God told him to do through Joseph Smith. That's how much he was converted, quote unquote, uh, at this point. And that's how he got section 39. In this section 39, he's told to be baptized in verse 10. He's told to labor in the Lord's vineyard, verse 13. And then the bombshell or what I think is the bombshell, go to Ohio. That's verse 14. That is basically the opposite direction he had been preaching in for the last 40 years. And then a day later, after talking all that good stuff, James is just like, nah, fam, not for me. And then he leaves Fayette, never comes back. And that's how he gets section 40. The explanation for Brother James's 180. Now, I don't know that anybody would be particularly surprised by Koval's decision given his circumstances, like we've talked about them already. But i do want to highlight some elements of his story that i hope make us consider how we respond to the lord's call because there's a theme that i'm noticing as i read the scriptures there is a call so much of what we have in the scriptures is people responding to calls and they're always difficult calls like sometimes people straight up refuse the calls and then the lord has to get them right they have to swallow them with a fish or something like that just to get them to act right our entire church is founded on joseph smith responding to a call and following it through to the end you know all the way to his death we talked about this already he was ready to die for the cause of the gospel now again i don't know that I, anybody would be particularly surprised by Koval's decision because of the circumstances but let's uh, just talk about some of these elements the first thing To notice is that brother koval was convicted by something at the conference perhaps the revelations in what is now section 38 to care for the poor and needy perhaps to be one to esteem each other as siblings i'm not entirely sure but whatever was said at this conference was profound enough to catch his attention and make him seek more information and then he determined that he needed to follow the prophet his heart was in the right place his heart was right This is a lot of what would-be allies experience after high-profile incidents of black trauma happen in America. They hear the news. They hear the cries of black America. They are convicted by what they hear. They feel like they got to do something. And for a day or two, they're pondering their privilege, how much they don't know and can't know, and how they're going to do and be better. And then they reach out to their nearest black friend and ask that age-old question, what can I do? And, you know, their heart is in the right place. At least I believe it is every time. Well, possibly, but it could be that their
1: heart is in the the discomfort that they want to alleviate and they want Uh to feel like they've done something rather than actually do something.
0: Perhaps. Yeah. Got to acknowledge that, too. And then one more really interesting thing is highlighted in the uh, section 39 revelation in verse 9 here. Nevertheless, thou hast seen great sorrow, for thou hast rejected me many times because of pride and the cares of the world. Quote. This isn't the first time the Lord has tried to tell Brother James what was up. But because perhaps Brother Koval felt he had too much to lose, he didn't respond to the call as he should have. And white folks do this a bunch, too. And especially high profile incident happens for my generation. It started with Trayvon, then was Michael Brown, and now in this moment for this generation, it's George Floyd. White people get some strong feelings, like they gotta do something, and they reach out to their black acquaintances, they follow a few anti-racist accounts on social media, maybe they even buy a book, but then they find out what they have to do, and it's too much. Perhaps it costs too much time, too much energy. Perhaps it costs them relationships, etc. And they get discouraged. They unfollow the accounts after a couple weeks. They never finish the book. And then the next high-profile incident happens. They feel guilty about how little they've done, maybe. They feel sorrow for the pain being experienced by others, and the cycle begins anew. God has been reaching out to white folks many times throughout the last 400 years through the cries of black folks to embrace him by heeding those cries. And by not doing so... They robbed themselves in a similar manner to which James Covel robbed himself by breaking his covenant. And make no mistake, we've talked about it on the show before. Heeding the cries of the marginalized is part of our baptismal covenants. Just in the previous section, the Lord was commanding his people to care for the poor and the needy. Based on where we're at as a church and as a country, though, we're not hearkening to that call. Through the preservation of white supremacy, we have, as James Covel, rejected the Savior many times because of pride and the cares of the world. And in so doing, we forfeited similar blessings. Greater work, as is written in verse 11. Power. Great faith in verse 12. The endowment, which I believe is that great power or that great blessing in verse 15. Converts which is basically 15 to the end. You think we might be able to get more black converts if we actually minister to them in their grief? Like perhaps, I don't know. Um, I'd like to believe so, but you know, this is what, this is what we're dealing with. This is what I see mirrored in James Covel's story Mm -hmm. is just, yeah, rejecting Jesus Christ many times, despite being called and despite having the opportunity many times to, Follow Jesus Christ in sustaining His mission to the margins. But uh, anyway, let me move on. Let me go to a section forty, which is a very short, which is very short in that it simply tells us why James Koval went back to his old life. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a conversation. Before I go any further, there is a conversation about God's omniscience for ordination and agency to be had here. But I'm going to leave that to the other Come Follow Me podcasts. All I want to say is that this entire narrative is not evidence of fraud on Joseph's part. There is always room for agency to mess God's plans up when he drops revelations on folks. I've had a right heart before and went against it. Perhaps some of our listeners have experienced this as well. I don't know. My point is that God's revelations don't doom anyone to particular course of action or outcome. They don't rob agency. There isn't evidence for a God like that in any of these revelations. The Lord gave James power to make and keep his covenant and the agency to decide whether to make and keep it for himself. Revelation gives us knowledge of God's will. It makes us free to choose. And Brother Koval chose to break it. But why did he break it? His heart was right. He was ready to do right. But verse 2 says, quote, Satan tempted him, and the fear of persecution and the cares of the world caused him to reject the word. Wherefore, he broke the covenant. Close quote. Koval once again... Heard the call and didn't respond. He counted the cost and decided that going to Ohio and leaving behind a life he spent 40 years building was too much, even if it was the Lord asking, very much like the rich young ruler. Mm -hmm. What he was being asked was too much. Similarly, there's a cost to allyship. Now, Derek, I don't know if you remember this uh, from the news cycles back in 2015 during the Laquan McDonald uh, protest, But there was this uh, young white pastor who was uh, making the rounds named Daniel Hill. If you remember him, basically what happened was he was at this uh, protest, this march on the uh, Chicago Police Department. And Daniel, this young pastor, he was given a megaphone and asked to pray. Now, Daniel Hill didn't view himself as an activist, but when he was given that megaphone, he felt prompted to, in his prayer, called white Christians to repentance for failing to value black lives. It was an innocuous enough statement during that prayer, but dude got, like, he was brought on to all these, like, news cycles, you know, he was on CNN, he was talking to all kinds of people, interviewing with all kinds of newspapers about the moment, you know. But something that also wasn't really seen was that uh, he was attacked on social media. He experienced racial violence from other white people. His church needed security. His family's safety was threatened. Like there was a cost to him meeting the moment that he was given. And others have paid more and others have paid less. But there is often a cost to threatening institutions of, of the powerful for the sake of Christ, and no one knows that better than the person asking Koval to move to Ohio, Jesus Christ himself. There's a cost to doing what the Lord says along with the blessings, and many people don't want to pay that cost. Now, to be fair to James Koval, there's no guarantee that if you speak out for justice and work towards reconciliation, that things are going to turn out well for you. You could lose your job. You could you, you could lose your reputation. You could lose your friendships, family members, respectable standing in your community or workplace. One of my favorite examples of this is a Vashti in the book of Esther. She stood up to mm-hmm. Xerxes yeah. and literally lost everything. But if it wasn't for her, we would never get the story of Esther. We would never have the experience of Esther. We have Esther because Vashti rose to a moment. She responded to a call. She stood up for what was right, and we had the story of Esther because of that. Now, we don't know much else about her, but we do know that she lost everything in this life, you know? And uh, I believe that the Lord sanctified that sacrifice that she made. Now, you might feel Mm -hmm. isolated. You might feel alone. You might feel discouraged more often than not as a result of this. You might put yourself in danger. You might even lose your life. You know, we talked about this earlier in the show, Derek? Again, there's no guarantees that things will go well, so they don't do anything. People aren't inclined to do anything, or they do so little that they may as well have done nothing. And in so doing, they reject the Savior as Koval did, because their comforts are more valuable and important to them than their covenants. And as a result, Koval's story is little more than a footnote in the story of the church when it could have been a lot more, had he not feared persecution and held on to the cares of this world. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I wanna say some things about that. I So there's a, and these are some insights that come from the field of religious studies. And for listeners that might not be aware, there's a difference between theology and religious studies. So theology is the discipline of uh, like systematic theology or exegetical theology or pastoral theology where you are sort of working out your faith. And St. Anselm of Canterbury defined uh, or, or the work of theology, as fides Querens intellectum, faith seeking understanding. Sort of you start from the standpoint of faith and you're seeking an understanding, uh, self-articulation of that faith. Now religious studies is a more secular discipline that's essentially descriptive. You're you're just describing what is without a value commitment or a faith commitment to any one side or the other. And so we've got a lot of religious, now I'm a theologian, I'm not a religious studies person, but one of the insights from religious studies, and I can't remember some of these uh, publications right now, but it talks about like why are high demand religions so successful, relatively, because we have conservative churches that are growing in the United States and we have fairly liberal churches that are declining in membership. And this is true not just within Christianity, but also in Judaism, Islam, Around around the world, you've got high demand religions end up attracting followers, and what's 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 going on with that? And there's something called the free rider problem because religions and religious communities do great things for the people involved. Like when I was an Episcopalian, I wasn't going to get like ten other Episcopalians to move my stuff. That's just not going to happen, right? Hmm. Um, but here like if i need something people will help me and so communal religion actually has benefits but there's a free rider problem in that some people may and this is the theory is that may benef- may want to get the benefits but not the but not invest and so mm. what having costly displays of commitment does is it weeds out the free riders. It explains why some of these high demand religions are actually quite successful because it promotes group cohesion, it promotes um, altruistic behavior, taking care of one another, people being fully committed and invested with one another. And that's, I think, kind of what what here, what we've got with James Koval is an example of that is he was asked to, to sacrifice and to go to the Ohio. I don't even know what it means by the Ohio, because <laughs> it's not the Ohio River, because that's down at the southern border of Ohio, and Kirtland's up uh, near Lake Erie. So I don't know what he's talking about with the Ohio. Someone that's more of an expert can tell me what that means. But James Koval was scared away by the by the high demands that the Lord was making of him at that. Moment, and it's it's kind of a tragedy to me. Now here, I can empathize with some of James Covel because I, like him, came from outside of the church, and for years I knew about the church and didn't join it. I was kind of in that position, and I was actually in uh, going to Andover Newton Theological School partway through my degree when I did uh, when I joined the church. So I'm I, I've seen my I see a lot of myself kind of in the situation that he was in. And I was thinking about this. If James Covel had joined the church, it would have changed the future of the church to have such a high-respected member of another religious tradition. He wasn't just some random minister. As you said, right. he was the president of of one of the conferences in New York. He was... Uh, yeah involved he was a leader in this methodist reform movement he was a leader in ordaining uh the folks who ended up as part of the ame zion church Mm -hmm. he like did stuff like he was a big deal it was it would be like having charles anthon join the church or some one of these other he that would have been big and i think bringing his knowledge of the bible his knowledge of preaching his uh, knowledge of ministry. like He could have been kind of like Sidney Rigdon was, but even more so. Mm-hmm. And we, he would have been such a great treasure to the church, but then he wasn't. Mm. That's kind of a, I think it's a, a tragedy in the end, I guess. Hmm. But he has his, his agency and his reasons, and the Lord found another way. That's what he does,
0: finds ways out of no way.
1: Speaking of finding a way, I want to go back to this one verse in in section 39 where it's promised to koval this is verse 10 it says arise and be baptized and wash away your sins this is echoing acts chapter 2 calling on my name and you shall receive my spirit and then here's the good part and a blessing so great as you never have known so the lord is promising him yeah you don't understand what great things I have for you. You maybe understand that the sacrifice, like what it would mean to go to the Ohio, but you don't understand the amazing unknown blessing that you can't even comprehend or imagine. And that would have been worth
0: it. Mm. Let's go ahead and uh, wrap things up. Before we do wanted to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more genu- generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us
1: on Instagram and Twitter at btblds. You can also find us on Facebook. And you can also find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com.
0: Yeah, don't forget, we got a whole website. Also, a special thanks to Tamara Kemsley and David Doyle, who uh, be handling our audio and our transcripts, respectively. Thank you guys for handling business for us. Really appreciate it. Then with that, thank you guys for listening. Till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone.